you're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from Maine. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Good morning, everybody. This is Down East Mike and the Down East Mike Podcast, episode number 95. 95, wow. This is news and commentary for July 11th, 2023. And sorry if I've been offline for a little bit. I've been rusticating. And uh, because that's what you do this time of year, especially in New England when it rains every day, you rusticate, ruminate, and think about things that are going on around you. This is the Down East Mike podcast. If you're new to the podcast, we should tell you that some of this is whimsy, some of it is true, and the interpretation of it all is entirely up to to you. And this is Tuesday, July 11th. 2023 the month is hurling by at the speed of light time now we also like to ask did you know that down east mike contains no mean words just wholesome goodness from down east maine a historical literary auditory candy store and did you hear the bells in the door when you came in we're like an old nostalgia shop when you come in just kind of poke around don't have to buy anything you wander around and you can just look at all the moldy old books in the corner and think about it. Sit down in the overstuffed chair with the rips on the arm. Just sit down and watch the other tourists coming in and think, huh, I wonder where they're from, mother. Of course, they're usually from Massachusetts or New York or Connecticut. And we like those places. We have relatives that came from there, too. I'm kind of rambling this morning. We, we'll tell you about what's going on in the podcast today. Uh, let's see, uh, headlines. New England bakes in record-breaking heat. And that was July 11th, 1981. Just think of it. It was hot then, too. There was a tornado in Gray, Maine. And that's from 1909. Samuel Champlain. Taste the Wild Grapes, July 1606. Whoa, a long time ago. We'll get a deep dive on Samuel Champlain, the explorer. Uh, An electric ferry plies the Rhine in 1909. An electric ferry in 1909. That is a story. And then we'll look at Maine's tropical plant, also a story from 1909. Isn't that enough to keep your interest and hold you glued to this podcast? That excitement. What do they say that uh, you'll pay for a, you'll pay the for the whole seat, but you'll only use half of it because it's so exciting? Let's look at the world and international headlines for today. As you're getting up on Tuesday, July 11th, Biden just secured a big win from his European trip, and that says that's a political story. This is an ad. It says Amazon Prime Day TV deals. Prices from just $79 today. They ought to pay you to buy a TV at this point. Who doesn't have five TVs or more sitting around? Landslide destroys luxury homes in Southern California neighborhood. You could hear the snap, crackle, and pop. There was an awkward moment as uh, King Charles moved Biden along during a chat with the guardsmen. I guess 
President Biden stood there and was transfixed by one of the guardsmen's big, tall hats. There was some story about the Scottish Scottish uh, military killing a bunch of bears to make new hats or something. Uh, what else do we have? James Lewis, the longtime suspect in the 1982 Tylenol murders, is dead at 76. I remember that when they put the Tylenol, they had a scared of cyanide or something in Tylenol. What else is going on in the world and international news? North Korea accuses U.S. of repeatedly entering its economic zone. North Dakota Governor Doug Burkham solicits $1 donations in exchange for $20 gift cards. Have you seen this guy? His eyebrows are really, really big. They look like miniature doormats. You know, like he looks like a Russian diplomat or something. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. We'd never heard of him before, but he's running political ads like crazy in Maine. I guess he's running for president, apparently, of the U.S. Monday's Powerball jackpot is $675 million. If you win that, you don't have to go to work again. And Meta is finally having its moment with the Twitter alternative threads. All right, that's enough of the uh, world and international headlines. Anything going on in Maine? Norway man ran over his wife in his truck and stabbed her, police say. Uh, what else is local? Arraignment rescheduled for man accused of killing four in Bowdoin. Lots of pleasant news. Deadly flooding in several counties in Maine. Scientists say this will be increasingly common. And anything else? Electric scooters coming to Orono. Heavy rain may bring flooding to parts of Maine. We already know that. And death of man found in car in Madison has ruled homicide. This is all just really nasty local news. I don't see anything else there we're going to bring to your attention. Let's go instead to our, oh, our illness of the instant. Yes. Yes, this is a new a new thing. Driver's drift. Driver's drift is the illness of the instant, and that is something that can impact men or women. Driver's drift occurs as you're driving, and it usually is at the end of your long work day. And the drift part of it is where you're either your eyes are glazing over and you're drifting off to sleep, or the car itself can physically be affected by your mental state and the car drifts to the left or right. As long as you don't cross the fog line, you're okay. But driver's drift is something that would impact either men or women, usually on a commute, usually coming home from work later in the day or early in the morning. And that is remedied by sleeping and not working. Driver's drift is your illness of the instant on the Down East Mike podcast, we have some birthdays. Don of Yarmouth turned 75 years old. He managed a local store for many years. He volunteers at the cat shelter, and he's been married twice to the same woman. You can't really call Don a womanizer because he married the same woman twice. Happy birthday to Claire of New Sweden. She's 27 today. She's trying desperately to relocate, but in the meantime, She's spending a lot of time commuting to Caribou to sell produce. 
And let's go back to this day in uh, 1981. The main Yankee reactor is brittling. That was the headline. 14 nuclear reactors around the country, including Maine Yankee and Wiscasset, Maine, have unexpectedly brittle reactor vessels that could crack and lead to a serious accident unless they're fixed. That's what a spokesman for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said Wednesday. Radiation over a period of time gradually causes brittling of a reactor vessel. Eight-inch thick protective metal shields that surround the reactors. I remember finding those little cards along the road that said something about uh, radioactive test. And, you know, you I don't know if you're supposed to turn it in or, or, or whatever, but that'd be kind of disconcerting to find those little cards today. Uh, the concern is if you have the brittling of the reactive vessel metal in one of the emergency cooling systems is needed or turned on, that would begin pumping cold water into the vessel. Temperature difference between the hot and the cold would cause crack. Meltdowns are not a good thing around nuclear power plants. Also on this day in 1981, a two-masted schooner, the Vernon Langell, Vernon Langell. It crashed into the Carlton Bridge across the Kennebec River uh, between Bath and Woolwich, and the vessel uh, capsized. It was trying to pass under the open portion of the bridge. It became caught in the wind or current and was unable to make the opening. The crew of eight was rescued by the Coast Guard vessels. Uh, that's a lot of current probably and wind and that's a tough thing to navigate with a schooner. I don't think know what they had for power on it, but they apparently, in the there's a big picture here, and the sails were up on it. Here's our headline about the record-breaking temperatures. New Englanders jammed bridges and cranked up air conditioners Wednesday as the region baked in record-breaking temperatures hot enough to inspire the creation of a record-breaking two-and-a-half-ton ice cube. The mercury soared to 97 in Rhode Island, breaking the record of 96. A high of 93 in Maine tied the record set in 1973. Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, New Hampshire also reported readings in the 90s. WTIC radio disc jockey Gary Craig in Hartford, Connecticut cooled his haunches on a six-foot square, 3,000-pound ice cube in an attempt to earn a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records. He sat on the block one and a half hours in front of the station's broadcast offices while some 1,600 snow cones were given to passers-by. WTIC ordered the block of ice, built in 10 sections and fused together around 7.30, program director said the station plans to write to Guinness to apply for top ice cube honors which shouldn't be tough there's no entry for the world's biggest ice cube uh, Rhode Island the high temperature record was broken for the second day in a row at 3 p.m. when the mercury hit 97 97 doesn't seem that warm does it I mean it's hot but weather experts in Concord New Hampshire earlier in the day suggested the high temperature record of 97 set in 1912 would be broken, but the mercury only reached 93. 
so it was hot then too. Alright, we're going to roll it back to 1909. This is out of Lewiston, Maine. A heavy damage to Maine crops. Hail and wind caused havoc. Monmouth and Gray were the storm centers. Area, uh, acres of sweet corn and potatoes were driven into the ground. A barn was moved. Roofs torn off, trees uprooted, chimney blown down, and other damage. They had a lot of action in that headline. It's big, big font, so it's easy to read. A great funnel-shaped black cloud whirling and careening through the air gave the town of Gray Thursday afternoon the loosest copy of a Texas tornado that has been seen in Maine for many years. Where the whirling cloud touched the earth as it did at occasional intervals, trees, buildings, telephone poles, and everything else was swept clean away. The results are $1,000 worth of damage to the farm of Samuel Foster, which was unfortunately one of the places where the cloud dipped the earth. His ice house is wiped off the earth. His barn was wrecked. His house roof punctured by a big limb. His or orchid was uprooted and his crops partly gone. A half a mile away from Foster's, the cyclone landed in the woods and a quarter of a mile of woodland is wiped clean of trees as though by a giant hand. Of course, today we'd have drone footage of it all, wouldn't we? Many people saw the approaching cyclone. It was the strangest looking storm cloud they had ever seen and were thankful that it did not strike more settled parts of town. Mr. Sawyer, proprietor of the store at North Gray, heard it. He thought it was an automobile approaching at high speed through the driving rain, and then he ran to his door prepared to give them shelter. Instead of the auto, he found the air full of flying tree branches and timbers. Mr. Foster was at our neighbor's when the storm struck, and from the direction of the wind did not hear the cyclone end of it, and it was a strange shock when he looked over to his buildings and saw the wreckage of barn, ice house, and orchid. Uh, it, I think where's that other strip in you know, a little bit we want to read. On one farm two miles out, several hours after the storm passed, a drift of hailstones 12 feet long and 6 feet wide was found on the farm of Mr. Fred Bonney. How, if you had a name like Fred Bonney, could you be Bonnie? Could you be anything but a farmer? His three acres of sweet corn and the same of potatoes are completely stripped and driven into the ground by the force of the storm. This is but one of the many who met with a heavy loss by reason of this storm in this village. Mama Center, 60 panes of glass were broken out of one building. The loss to fruit will be heaviest. Many of the apples on the trees having holes cut in the side or deep bruises covering one quarter of the apple. To those dependent on the crops for a livelihood, the situation is discouraging as the profits, if not the income of a year's operation, has been swept away in a single hour. And then they also mentioned a severe hailstorm passing over Minot on Thursday afternoon. Isn't that something? Uh, oh, Mrs. Foster said that uh, they were held, they, Mrs. Foster started out the doors, but was held back by her, her daughter. 
a fact at which may have saved her life. They were badly frightened, but the house withstood the shock. Just a violent storm. I don't know how much that happens today, but it's very, very rare. The Tafts and the young Tafts, this would be President Taft's kids, they were at the Summer White House in this day, 1909, somewhat weary, from the, actually stories out of Beverly, Mass., somewhat weary from the festivities of the Lake Champlain celebration, but delighted upon reaching their summer home, Miss Helen Taft and her brother, Robert Taft, children of President Taft, arrived from Burlington at 9 a.m. today and were warmly greeted by their mother and brother Charles. You've got to line these people all up in your head. I start with President Taft because I can picture him big with a walrus mustache and, you know, wearing white clothes as summer whites. The big presidential automobile met them at the station and whirled them down to the summer White House in Beverly, Mass. The weather along the North Shore since the Taft family took up its residence there has been exceptional. In the cool conditions, the blue sky and the clear atmosphere continue today to the delight of the younger people of the family while Mrs. Taft is showing marked improvement. I love these stories where they don't tell what she was sick of, but they do say, yeah, she's getting better. Let's do our deep dive on Samuel Champlain. This is about him touring up and down the coast of Maine back in the 1600s. In the public recognition of the part which Samuel de Champlain played in the discovery of the lake which bears his name and his adventures into the Iroquois country, the state of Maine ought to have taken a far more prominent part. None of the early explorers is more intimately connected with the early history of Maine than Champlain, and it may be worth our readers' while to go over with us, briefly, the story of Champlain's three voyages along the Maine coast which bear so large a part in the early colonization of these shores. They're kind of long-winded here, but... There's some good parts, too. We'll try to pick them out. For a third of a century, I didn't realize he spent this much time doing it. Uh, The principal figure in the story of the French colonization of America is that of Champlain. He was a soldier in the wars of Henry IV, and he found an outlet for his energies in the time of peace by undertaking voyages of discovery. He first visited Central America and Mexico, And while at Panama, he commented upon the advantages that would accrue from the construction of the canal, thus anticipating history by 300 years. He's like, oh, we really could use a canal through here. When in 1604, Dumont was granted by the government of France a monopoly of the fur trade, Champlain, as royal geographer, sailed again to found a colony. This colony became Port Royal on the Bay of Fundy, the present site of the town of Annapolis, Nova Scotia. If you've ever been there, what a beautiful place. So from 1604 to 1608, Champlain lived at Port Royal. And there's about five years in Champlain's life between 1604 and 1609 and he was voyaging back and forth along the shores 
of the Gulf of Maine from Nova Scotia to the uh, hook of Cape Cod and beyond. It was in September of 1604 that Champlain left the headlands to the north, braved the swift tides of Fundy, swept down the Atlantic where it beats into this huge basin of the open sea and reached as far south as Monhegan, uh, within 10 leagues of the Quinton Bequay. I think that was the Kennebec. Here they met heavy weather and on September 23rd turned the ships northward back to the St. Croix River where they pitched their winter quarters. After the winter had passed, Dumont decided upon another voyage down the Bay of Maine, and here we are indebted to Champlain's own book, uh, or, or, sorry, report of the trip for the information that it had. July 1st, actually, 1605, they left the mouth of the Norimbatig and sailed to the west. He states that according to his opinion, they had sailed about 25 leagues over the course when they came to the mouth of the Quinbecay, where they were anchored in five or six fathoms of water. I bet they were using a lead line to get that depth. They didn't have sonar then. Champlain says, at the, at the entrance, there is an island quite high, which we have named La Tortue, and between this and the mainland are some scattered islands and the rocks covered at high tide, but the sea breaks over them. The Isle de la Tortue and the river are south-southeast and north-northwest. It is agreed that the Quinbecay of the Indians was a Sheepskit River. Okay, Sheepskit River of today. And it was up this river that Champlain party worked the ship it coming very near, as Champlain says, to being wrecked upon one of its treacherous ledges. Further up the stream, they met a party of savages in two canoes with whom they talked with and of a squaw, Panumnum, who had come along with Champlain's party from St. Croix as a guide and by whose intercession Champlain was able to induce these savages to show him the way to the Sagamore or chief, Man Thou Murmur. Man Thou Murmur. We should have Sagamores today. Their course was still upstream, passing, as Mr. Sylvester says in Maine Coast Romance. They passed miles of sloping uplands, mid meadowlands, and marshes, leaving behind a long, narrow island, making at last the head of the river, which may have been around present-day Wiscasset. Here they discovered the Indian village, its Sagamore, and about 30 of the tribe. It was the most friendly conference, and after disposing of some trinkets among the delighted savages, a treaty was entered upon. This is written in 1909. So, The following day, guided by the Indians, the French made the passage from the sheepskit into another stream. I wonder what that was. The annals of this trip written by Champlain are as follows as far as they relate to this immediate adventure. Passing by some islands, each of the savages left an arrow near a cape by which all must pass. It is believed that unless they do this, the devil will bring about some misfortune. They live in superstition as well as many others. Near this cape 
We passed a wall of water, but it was not done without great difficulty, for although we had a fair and fresh wind and carried all the sail we possibly could, we were obliged to take a hawser ashore and fasten it to the trees, and then pull with all our strength, and thus by main force and favor and wind we got through. The savages who were with us carried their canoes along the shore, being unable to make headway with their paddles. After passing the fall, we saw several beautiful meadowlands. I was much astonished at this fall because we descended easily with the tide, but at the fall it was against us, and above the fall it ebbed, as before, much to our satisfaction. Old Champlain wrote pretty nicely, didn't he? with his quill pen. Pursuing our route, we came to a, a lake which is three or four leagues along with islands in it. Here descend two rivers, the Quinnipiquet, which comes from the northeast, and another which comes from the northwest, by which Marchim and Sarazu were to come. But having waited the whole of this day without seeing them, we resolved to keep our time employed, and so weighed anchor, and came to the mouth of the river. According to General John Marshall Brown, whose brochure upon Champlain's explorations is a warm and deserved tribute to the genius of Champlain and his influence in the colonization of the Maine coast, General John Brown says it's evident that Champlain explored the sheepskit to the northern extremity of Westport. He descended the river on the west side of the island, passed close to what is now Hockamock Point, pulled the vessel through the upper Hell Gate, and so entered the Kennebec proper and passed on to Merry Meeting Bay. That descent was made through the channel to the site of Port Fort Popham, where they probably anchored unless they made a harbor a little further to the westward. Can you imagine being on the shore and just seeing that ship sailing around by itself? Nothing else on the river but this ship, and it must have looked really strange to them. It is evident that Champlain put in about three weeks around Casco Bay, Casco Bay and Cape, then he went down to Cape Cod. And when, when he again sailed down the coast homeward, he ran into the mouth of the Saco River. And there he met Marchem, the Sagamore of the lands around Casco Bay. And that must have been quite a picture, too. They should make a movie about Champlain. I don't think they have. Four days later, Champlain had reached the mouth of the Kennebec, where he met another Indian sagamore named Anaskou. Champlain says in his chronicles, Anaskou told us there was a vessel six leagues from the harbor which had been engaged in fishing, and the people on board had killed five savages of this river under the pretense of friend friendliness, and according to his description, we described them to be English, and named the island where they were Lernef, because at that distance it had that appearance. Lernef is a French word for a vessel, a ship. The island was Monhegan, and is believed by our main historians, including Mr. Sylvester, whose story we are following therein, that this vessel was Weymouth's archangel. From this adventure at the mouth of the Kennebec, Champlain evidently went directly back to Port Royal. Many of DuPont's, or Dumont's followers went back to France that year, but Champlain remained, intending, as he says, by the grace of God, to finish and perfect the chart 
which he had commenced of this country and of this coast. One more bit on Champlain. Of course, there's no need to call our reader's attention to the very lively historical con controversy which has arisen over the Weymouth, uh, Weymouth voyage. Whether he sailed up the George's River or into Booth Bay Harbor and up the Kennebec is not the purpose of this sketch to discuss. What does occur to the writer in this relation is the paucity of interest which the schools of Maine display in the early history of this coast and how important it is on a session like this when the attention of the world is devoted to such a man as Champlain to trace down as far as possible his course up and down our coast so rich with historical traditions. Oh, what other stories we have? Strawberries may not be plentiful in some parts of Maine, but it sure, surely is not the case in Searsport. One day this week, a woman there picked three ten-quart pails full of the field variety within of two hours. Pails of strawberries with dew on them. A new relative to the tarantula, which hailed from the vicinity of Sebago Lake, was present at the meeting of the members of the New England Federation of Natural History held Friday evening in Portland. This is a spider. The large black fellow was in a bottle, and when this receptacle was turned over by those who desired to examine his displeasure by wiggling about and moving his jaws, if they may be called such, as if he'd like to use them on somebody's flesh, he was certainly not pretty to look at, and Professor J.H. Emerton, who dug him from a hole in the ground five or six inches in depth, informed the people in attendance that the insect was much more closely related to the horrid tropical spider than are some of the hairy creatures which give one the fits occasionally when they appear in a bunch of bananas. Professor Emerton is an authority on spiders, having collected them and photographed their footprints in the sand. I wonder what kind of spider that was, D digging out of the ground. Uh, story in this day in 1909, an electric ferry boat. An electric ferry boat plies the Rhine, and it provides regular service between Goldsburg and Niederdollendorf. Niederdollendorf is licensed to carry 645 persons, there is free space on a wooden foredeck to accommodate four harnessed vehicles. The boat is propelled by two screws, each driven by a 300-volt, 50-horsepower motor. The screws may be controlled separately or together. They had this much technology in 1909. The battery room is ventilated by portholes and outlet plate pipes. Two three-horsepower three motors operate the landing gangways. The batteries are charged on the Goldsburg side of the river through a flexible cable which is carried aboard to a plug contact. The landing stage consists of a pontoon 52 feet inches by 16 feet connected to the shore by a bridge 82 feet long. We found a little more story on that. The first electric boat was tested on the St. Petersburg canals in Russia in 1839. This was followed in 1886 by the Elektra, which was a test boat from Siemens and Helsk. The city of Berlin in Germany tested it for local public transport. 
The boat had room for 25 passengers and sailed along the River Spree at 14 kilometers per hour. The technology was not yet sufficiently mature and the batteries were too heavy, development not pursued any further. 25 years later, the electric ship Accumulator sailed on Lake Konigsee in Bavaria, Germany. It was also built by Siemens. Carrying up to 38 people, the boat could travel up to 100 kilometers, 60 miles, with a fully charged lead battery. The concept proved to be successful. Electrically driven pleasure boats still sail on the lake today. The Gottesberg Neidendollendorf, an electrically driven ferry, sailed on the River Rhine in Germany from 1908 to 1945. And in Sweden, the Hamfajan ferry was put into operation in 1913 to sail between the islands of Maastricht and Kuhn using the electric drive system. Isn't that something? The Joslin Botanical Society reports a curious case at North Berwick, Maine. There was a pickle factory at that place, and the salt water was thrown out on a certain spot. For several seasons, they found a series of tropical heliotrope which seemed to find a perfectly congenial home in this artificial sea beach. We're going to have more on that in a moment. Because, our flower of the instant, marine heliotrope, heliotropium arborescens marine. So this is like a purplish flower, beautifully scented, Deep purple flower clusters are featured on upright mounted dark green foliage. There's a heat tolerant variety, excellent in borders, patio containers, and hanging baskets. Deadhead to encourage new growth throughout the season. About 20 inches in height, 18 inches spread, spacing 15 inches. Also known as the cherry pie plant has masses of beautiful clusters of fragrant, deep purple flowers. We know that. It is an annual with an upright spreading habit of growth. And they talk about the care and feeding of it. And then another story, another uh, a little more detail on the heliotropium. There's a salt heliotrope, a seaside heliotrope, quail plant. It goes to uh, some other names wild heliotrope and they talk about um, uh, the height of this one is one to two feet and it requires full sun and it is an annual or also as a perennial native to most of North and South America the heliotropium is a perennial plant in its native habitat but it's usually grown as an annual in colder climates. It's a sprawling plant, has different color flowers. You've got uh, the white or purple. The salt heliotrope is a butterfly magnet and a variety of butterflies regularly visit the flowers. It is also especially valuable to native bees. Each flower produces a fruit that separates into four nutlets. The seeds are favored by birds. The salt heliotrope spreads by shoots arising from the widespread roots and by self-seeding. 
While used as an ornamental, it is also used as a medicinal medicinal herb. Its dried roots are ground into a powder and applied to sores and wounds. The ashes of the plant are used as a salt substitute, a great candidate for rock gardens and coastal landscapes. Well, I thought that was interesting, but uh, I, I just I'm not that familiar with a heliotrope, I guess. Let's take a quick look at the forecast and then we'll send you out the day to greet out the door to greet the day for today, Tuesday the 11th of July. Uh, scattered showers before 8 a.m. Isolated showers after 1 p.m. Areas of fog before noon, otherwise cloudy, and then gradually becoming mostly sunny. A high near 78. Imagine seeing the sun after all this time. Northwest wind around 5 miles per hour. For tonight, uh, patchy fog after midnight, otherwise mostly clear. Looking ahead to Wednesday, a 30% chance of showers after 1 p.m., otherwise sunny with a high near 89. Warming up and sun coming out there. For Thursday, mostly cloudy with a high near 82. Friday, chance of showers. Then showers and possibly a thunderstorm. And yeah, mine's will break up the showers with a thunderstorm, but we don't want to see the sun. That is the Down East Mike podcast for today. And until next time, this is Down East Mike wishing you and your loved ones a day that is full of grace, love, and kindness. We'll see you. that I saw a whale today Just a slip of black against the blue wave A roll in the sun and she was gone, gone, gone It was just a glimpse I could have been wrong But it's only good for the room The bankers have their faults to keep their cold hearts even colder The whale has a whole ocean it can swim in It can sleep for hours in the murk
I could see the island in the mirror And against the setting sun I saw that whale breach And if only I could be as right as a whale If only my life story Could be as big as my tail If only I could be as right as